So I'm excited. I'm excited to study God's Word with you this afternoon. Now here at Refuge, we have been going through the New Testament verse by verse, but in chronological order, teaching through the Gospels. Each week we begin with observing the text. We learn who, what, where, how. That's the first step we usually look at. Then we want to learn also what, this helps us learn what the passages mean. So we want to then look at the interpretation of the passages. As we do that, as all of us do, a quick little Bible learning lesson here. As we want to interpret the scripture, we have some rules that we want to try to follow, some guidelines. We always want to try to have scripture interpreted literally. Now that doesn't always work, but that's the first step that we take. And then we also want to have context as we study God's word. And I think one of the most important ones is always let scripture interpret scripture. And remember, the New Testament always take precedence when we're interpreting scripture. So then as we study God's word, as we've observed the text, as we have came to the interpretation of the text, then we look at the application. How can we apply God's word and his lessons to our own life personally each and every day? We ask ourselves questions, right, in the application. What is my response to what I learned in God's word today? What examples have been given to follow or not to follow? Are there sins to repent of or maybe avoid? Maybe there's promises that we learn that we can rest upon and have foundational truths in there. There's so much more that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us as we look at the different applications. So this is expository teaching. And here at Calvary Chapel, Refuge Fellowship, that is kind of the basics of what we do. We teach God's Word. So I wanted to go through that. Each week I'm trying to cover a little bit more just who we are as a church. And just every week just cover one little point and uh, go through that. Now, today we're going to be back in Luke. So you can turn to Luke. We're going to be in Luke 11. And we're going to continue that story as Jesus and the disciples were headed toward Jerusalem for the Passover, which would be the one where he's crucified. Now, as Jesus has been traveling, we've been studying the lessons. And there's been some really amazing lessons that Jesus has been teaching. You know, I ask this question a lot, but I always think about it. If you, if you knew your time was short, what lessons would you teach to those that you love around you? I always wonder that. When I look at these lessons that Jesus is teaching, he knew. So what lessons would you teach? Jesus had taught on prayer. We saw in Luke chapter 11, uh, first 13 verses. He gave us an outline, a guide, how we can pray. And he also told us that we would be blessed, blessed through the Holy Spirit. And if you continue to look in Luke chapter 11, 14 through 29, as Jesus continued to travel, he had cast out a demon and a mute man. Now this stumbled many people when this took place. We remember the story. And then they challenged Jesus yet again to give another sign to prove who he was, as we remember that story. Remember what they did also? There was others. They went as far to say that Jesus was empowered by Satan. They, now, Jesus, he, he addressed these people, and he said, obviously what you're saying isn't even logical. 
It isn't even, doesn't even make sense what you're saying because Satan's demonic, demonic forces are united against the kingdom of God. So they're not going to fight against each other. So it wasn't even logical what they had said. Then we'd close that message in Luke chapter 11, verse 28. is where we left off. But even more blessed are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. To hear the word, to come to faith, then to receive the blessings of the mercy, the grace, and the peace that we have. Again, these are just a few of the blessings that we receive that Jesus has promised us when we come to faith. Now, as we get into today's passages, Jesus is blessing us again, but he's blessing us with a warning. A little different. A warning. What sorrow awaits to those who do not practice God's word. So let's dig in. Luke chapter 11, verse 29 through 30. After the crowds pressed in on Jesus, he said, This evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. What a way to start a message! A rebuke, because they had asked for a sign, and then Jesus begins with a warning. Jesus is likely referring back, as we've studied over the last few weeks, to a discussion that had taken place earlier. If you look at Luke chapter 11, verse 16, that's when they'd asked for the sign after he'd freed the man from the demonic possession. They again asked for a sign. And so now Jesus again is responding to this. You could imagine now, the crowd has grown, the scripture says. So Jesus is now looking out upon this large crowd, and he opens to speak to them. And he calls them evil. Themselves, not just themselves, but he also calls their entire generation evil. Interesting way to start a message, huh? Can you imagine if I just get up here and begin the message as Jesus did by addressing all of you? and saying, you guys are all evil. Maybe there's some preachers that do that, I don't know. But why had Jesus done this? Because these Jewish people had hardened their hearts towards the word, the truth of who Jesus is, the Messiah. Now, because of these people's hardness of hearts, they couldn't see the truth of God's word. He was standing there right before them. He was amongst them. Yet, Jesus says, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign as he stands before him. Just think about that. Jesus has called all of us to believe upon his word, to come to faith through the signs that he had already done, and to hear this and then keep his word. So Jesus then in the text, he reminds them of Jonah. I think all of us remember the story of Jonah. Many of us grew up in Sunday school learning of the story of Jonah. Very popular story. But think back to the story. How well do you remember the story? Think back to what happened in the storm beforehand. That was gonna, the storm that was going to sink the ship with everyone on it. Let's turn back. Turn back to Jonah. Let's go to Jonah chapter 1, 12 through 16. Again, this is on the ship during the storm. Jonah chapter 
1, verse 12. Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. O Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. So in this story, Jonah has offered himself at first to be thrown over, to die, because he knew he was the cause of this, and he knew the only way to stop this storm, to save these people, was for him to be thrown over. He was willing to give his own life, wasn't he? So these others on the ship could have life. And then eventually, they threw him over into the sea, which then caused the people to worship God. But what happened in verse 17? In verse 17 in Jonah chapter 1, it says, Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. So God now had saved Jonah in this miraculous way and had a plan. I'll turn back to Luke and look again in verse 30. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent them. What happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. Jesus has prophesied that a greater sign is indeed coming, proving what they should have already known that Jesus is God. So let's continue. Look at verse 31 through 32. The queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. This would have got some attention of the people listening. Again, Jesus, he comes very boldly preaching. He says, now someone greater than Solomon is here. That was bold. It wasn't King David. Solomon was a great, respected patriarch in the Jewish society. And he says, someone even greater than him is here. And he continues, he says, now someone greater than Jonah is here. But again, then he says, but you refuse to repent. This would have rattled these guys. This, they would have taken these statements very seriously. But in this, Jesus is very clearly explaining that when judgment comes, those who refuse to come to faith will be condemned. Now, They've continued. They've continued to ask for more signs to be given as Jesus was standing right before them. Just think about that. In these verses, we, he, Jesus is clear. Who will be standing with Jesus on judgment days? The queen and the people of Nineveh to condemn these people. Now, these people, this queen, the people of Nineveh, 
They only had the testimony. Think about this. They had the testimony, the word to believe on, and yet they came to faith in God. Consider this. This queen, she came, she saw, she heard about God through Solomon. He, he, she heard the testimony of who God was, and she believed upon God. You can look in, we'll turn there. First Kings, chapter 10. We'll look at two verses, one, and then we'll go to nine. First Kings, chapter 10, verse one. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honor to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Then look at, just turn to verse nine. Praise the Lord your God who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of your Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. So she came, sought him out, she heard the message, and she believed. The Ninevites, they heard through the preaching of Jonah, didn't they? And yet, through this preaching, they repented of their sins, they turned from their ways, and then they turned to God. Look at Jonah 3, 5. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Again, amazing. They heard, they believed, they repented. There's no doubt, as we read this story about Jonah, and as mentioned here again in Luke chapter 11, that we can see a correlation between Jesus and Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and then we know God ordered him spit out on the shore on the third day. Relating to this Jesus, we know Jesus was in the grave in hell three days, then was resurrected by God on the third day. Now, I don't disagree, and I think it's an accurate picture that's painted here, but the story today, the lesson today in the reference to Jonah isn't really about that. I mean, it's a good correlation. It's true. But today is a little bit something different. Today, the story is about those that heard the word and those who repented. Jonah's life, he, when he went, he preached repentance, and he preached to turn to God. So Jesus now is strongly rebuking these people because many had came to faith in the past through hearing the testimony of others, the preaching of others, simply through hearing the word. Yet now, the word, Jesus was with them and they still remained faithless. God was with them and they refused to repent and place their faith in him. So next, Jesus has a lot more to say. He's going to explain a little more who he is and his purpose. Look at verse 33. No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. I'm going to camp out on these verses for a little bit. I just Starting with purpose. Purpose is a big word, I think. When we think about it, and as our walk as humans, as Christians, it's a simple word, but I think purpose is so foundational in a person's life, isn't it? I mean, without purpose in a person's life, what happens to that person, very typically? What happens if a person has the wrong purpose in their life? What if they live out their life according to a false purpose? I mean, it just raises questions, you know, purpose. What is our main purpose of our own existence here on this earth? What is your purpose? Why are you here? It's a big questions. 
Think about this. Think about your own purpose. What is your purpose? Why are you here? Think about that as we go through these texts here real quick. Because Jesus in this next passage is going to address all these different people that he's had interaction with, that we've studied over the last few weeks, from all those that have asked for a sign, those that accused him of being empowered by Satan, even going to address the woman who said he had blessed him or his mother. So in this verse 33, Jesus is going to teach us through this example of this lamp. And I think about this. We don't take a light in our house. Just take it to today's time. We don't take a light and turn the switch on and turn the light on and cover it up. It just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, why would you do that? You turn the light on, you want to see something. We turn on the light to accomplish a purpose to bring light into darkness, to make the unknown seen or revealed. The light has a purpose, to make the truth known, to reveal what was difficult to see in the darkness. It's not, it's interesting. It may reveal what was in the darkness when you turn on the light. That doesn't mean anything in the room or the situation is different, does it? It may be the same situation, but in the light, you can see. You can see what's there. You know what's there. It can be clearer. You know, as I looked at these verses, I seen some details in this verse that I think are important. Where is the light placed and why? Where is the main light source placed in a room today, even in your own house? Where should it be? Right in the center, in the ceiling, right? It's where it should be, right in the center, in the ceiling, what happens if you do have a light, but it's on the floor over in the corner? The result is the areas would not be illuminated near as well. There'd even be things possibly hidden in the room still, right? In the shadows. In poor lighting, what happens? We can stumble. There's obstacles that maybe we couldn't see in poor lighting. Even you could fall and get hurt. Maybe some of you have done that. You tripped over something in the night. Fallen? Poor lighting. I also thought about this, this analogy. So maybe there's poor lighting and you fall and get hurt. Maybe you've twisted your ankle. They say it happens in, you know, I hear a scream. I'm like, oh, oh, running out. But then when I get out there, it's hard for me to help someone that maybe has fallen and hurt themselves if I also can't see the obstacles because there's poor lighting. To know where to go to know how to help them. I'm going to come back to this verse. There's a little more I want to talk about, but I want to read verses 34 through 36 first to add a little more context to this. Luke chapter 11, verse 34. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as through a floodlight we're filling you with light. So Jesus is explaining that if we are filled with light, and we know Jesus is the light, that we no longer need to live in darkness. Now, for me, before I came to faith, all I knew truly was spiritual darkness. I was powerless over sin, 
I was enslaved. I was hopeless. I was trapped and just bound to the things of the world. I was blinded. I was blinded to the truth of Jesus and the Word. You know, so many things of the world were being poured into me and to my life. Lies, truly, most of them were being poured into my life. My vision was actually distorted. I was spiritually blind to the things of God. So just as Jesus is warning in verse 35, I had thought that I was seeking hope through the knowledge of the world. But in fact, it was darkness. It was truly darkness. So then, finally, I came to a point where I had nowhere else to turn. And in faith and complete surrender, I came before God. I came before Him and I turned from my sins. In all the things of the world, I pled with God. I said, Lord, please, Lord, I, I have nowhere else to turn. Hear my prayer. I surrender. I can't do this anymore. I've given up. Lord, I believe that you can. And so please, Lord, please free me from this darkness that I was living in. It was in that moment that the Holy Spirit filled me with his light, with his hope. I was no longer powerless over sin. I was no longer powerless over my emotions. I was no longer hopeless. I experienced what it was to be a child of God. I knew what it was to have grace poured out on me, mercy poured out on me. I knew what it was to be, have peace before God. Now look at verse 36 again. If you are filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. If you are, this is a promise that Jesus, and it goes back to this application, kind of what I was talking about. Purpose, right? It goes back to that. Does your life radiate Jesus' love? It's a pretty big question. Talking about purpose. If it doesn't, if people don't see you and see Jesus, I think each of us, I mean, we're never going to get this exactly right, but people should see you and we should point them to Jesus and that's our purpose. We should radiate the love of Christ throughout every area in our life. And if not... We need to examine the different areas of our lives. Because you know what? I got them. I think all of us got some areas that don't radiate Jesus. But we need to examine that. We need to repent of that. And we need to look at our life and see every single part of our life. Does that lead people to know Christ's love? Does that put a light on that? Now remember, as I looked at verse 33, I said I'd come back to that, didn't I? Now with looking at these other verses, I want to come back to it. Because I was sharing about where the light should be in place in the center of the room, right? In the top, in the highest position. Because if it's there, if it's there, right in the top, it's shining down, all the areas will be illuminated. So if Jesus is the light, he is where in your life? He should be in the center, shouldn't he? He should be at the highest point, shouldn't he? Now, if Jesus is the center of your life, he's the one bringing the light, He is illuminating all these areas in your life, does that mean there won't be still obstacles? No, there's still obstacles, right? Just because we have light doesn't mean there's not obstacles still present. But we can see them now, can't we? I think it's a good analogy. They're still there, but now they're out in the open. So you can deal with them. Deal with them correctly. So as we walk in the light, you know, 
Sometimes even in the light we stumble, don't we? We can even see it and we know it and we knew it was there and we still may trip up, don't we? Because we're human. We're not perfect. I do it. I think everyone here has done it. At least we know what we got, had to deal with, though, right? But now, this comes to others in our life, doesn't it? Because if you're living a life that Christ is the sinner and he's the light, what happens when you do stumble and fall? There's others in your life. That wasn't done in darkness, was it? We do stumble. But if it's not in darkness, there's others in the church and our brothers and sisters of Christ that can come alongside us and walk with us because it wasn't done in darkness. That's a big deal for me. Because if you have sin that's in the darkness, how do we help you? How do we come alongside you? We're not perfect. We have struggles. They're real. We have real struggles in life, every one of us. But if we're open about it, and they're in the light, and they're not in the darkness, we can come alongside each other. And we know how to help. We know how to pray for one another. We know how to lift you up. We know when you're hurt. We know what's going on in your life. So keep the lights on. Huh? Don't go into darkness. Don't be hiding in the corners. Don't be shutting the lights off. Be open. Share with your brothers and sisters in Christ what's going on in your life. I struggle with this. Be open. So if you fall, also, we're all going to fall. We're all going to stumble. Guess who's in the center? Right there. It'd be Jesus if he's center of your life. I don't know. Maybe I went too far in the analogy, but I think there's a lot there. And I think if we are walking in light, we will avoid a lot of bigger consequences, even when we stumble. Let's look at verse 37 through 43. This story is about to change. Verse 37 through 41. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish customs. Verse 39, then Then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. This is crazy. This leader, this religious leader has shown, for some reason, hospitality towards Jesus, invites him into his home and others, and has blessed Jesus with a meal. I kind of feel bad for this guy. He had no idea what was coming his way, did he? He's invited Jesus in. As I was studying some commentary, I was reading Daisy Guzik, and he mentioned we should remember the context as we see next what Jesus is saying, as we study this. I mean, think of this. They're all sharing a meal together. Jesus is in this home as a guest. Now, I think, I don't know for sure, but I believe Jesus didn't wash according to their custom, to use their own response so he could rebuke them. So Jesus Jesus kind of started this. It's interesting when you read it. Jesus, as an invited guest at the dinner table, says to them, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Imagine inviting someone over to your house at the dinner table, and that's what they say to you. Jesus is rebuking them using this example that their outside isn't reflecting who they were inside, full of greed and wickedness. Turn to Titus, Titus 1.15. Everything is pure to those 
whose hearts are pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving, because of their minds and consciousness are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny Him in the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Can you imagine sitting at this table? I mean, I say this kind of funnily, but I don't think they're going to offer Jesus dessert. I mean, he called this host, these Pharisees, out for their sin publicly, calling them basically hypocrites right at the table. But what else did Jesus call them? He called them fools. I'm sure this Pharisee was just thinking, I just made a huge mistake inviting this guy over. This would have been very awkward dinner discussion. But Jesus has so much more he's going to say to them. Look at verse 42. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things. So Jesus now is warning them of the sorrow that awaits them and gives another example of their legalistic behavior concerning tithing. Now, Jesus is clear here. We are to tithe, right? We are to give offering. But this is to be done with the correct heart, with a giving heart. And know that showing the love of Christ is to be at the center of everything we do, from tithing to every single aspect of our lives as followers of Jesus. Love must never, ever be neglected in the service of God's people. It must be the core to love as Christ is loved. Otherwise, we become like these religious leaders, being legalistic or just following the rules so we can be seen as holy. So this dinner party is not getting any better, is it? I mean, just imagine. But Jesus isn't done yet, is he? He's got a little more to say. Verse 43 through 44. What sorrow awaits you, you Pharisees? For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yet, what sorrow awaits you? For you are like hidden graves in the field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Jesus isn't missing his words, is he? Jesus continuing to rebuke these men and warning them that they are living out two different lives and that pride was at the root of all of it. They're walking around seeking to be honored in their communities for their, quote, holiness, but in fact, they're really hiding behind this religious facade because they're really like, as Jesus says, basically, they're rotting corpses in the grave behind their religious dress and attire. Now remember, this is still at dinner. I'm sure most of these Pharisees and these people sitting around this dinner table kind of lost their appetite. Kind of, I don't know, it'd be awkward, wouldn't it? What would you say if you were there at that dinner table? I've been some awkward conversations at dinner tables, but this tops anything I've ever seen, perhaps. But hearing this from Jesus, now somebody's going to speak up. Someone's got something to say. Let's look at verse 45. Teacher, said this expert in religious law, you have insulted us too, too, in what you have just said. This scribe, maybe an, you call it an attorney, interpreter of the law of the word, is saying now that he also has been insulted 
by what Jesus has said. Now, I believe he's insinuating that Jesus' rebuke wasn't at him. But he was still being a fence because of what Jesus had said about these other Pharisees. Perhaps he was trying to be like a mediator because he's seeing this take place. And he wants to get Jesus to stop talking about how wicked these men were and how they were going to be accountable for what the lives they were living. I mean, I can see this taking place at the table. The man raising his hand, looking at Jesus, trying to really kind of like defuse this situation as Jesus is just onslaught and rebuke to these men. So let's see what direction this dinner party is going in verse 46 through 51. Yes, said Jesus, what sorrow awaits you experts in religious law. For you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never left a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you? For you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But, in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime by building the monument. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. Jesus is like no holds barred. He's naming names and he's giving examples of their sin and calling them out as hypocrites. Jesus lists out their sins from the heavy burdens they placed on the people to the murder of God's prophets. Can you see these men's faces as Jesus calls them murderers of their own patriarchs? In this rebuke, Jesus also gives a prophecy. He says, I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. So not only condemning all of these men for what they've done, but also what they would continue to do, which we can see in Acts, what they did, exactly what took place. It wasn't even that long after that that these things started to take place. So I wonder even if some of these men that were in attendance at this dinner later in Acts, if they looked back and saw that, they thought Jesus' words as these events unfolded. So as Jesus is uh, closing up this party, he tells them that their generation is going to be charged and held accountable for these sins from the creation of the earth. And this is all why. It's, all reje- it's because they rejected Jesus Christ. That's why. So let's finish today's passages, 52 through 54. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world. From the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will be, certainly be charged against this generation. 52. What sorrow awaits you? Experts in religious law, so you remove the key to the kingdom from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you will prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Again, Jesus is speaking of judgment. Think about what he has said here. Preventing others from knowing the saving redemption of placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Sadly, you know, this still takes place today, doesn't it? People preaching a different gospel, a false gospel. So now this party, it's over. 
I'm sure they were happy to see Jesus go and leave. They ended it with a hostile rebuttal, maybe trying to save face. But this party is over. Now, as I begin this message, I begin with explaining inductive Bible study. Now, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give each of us the correct interpretation of these passages, and that each one of us would come away with an application that we can walk away this week to apply to each of our lives. Jesus has given many warnings or examples of how we should not be living out our lives, obviously, here. Five times Jesus warned of the sorrow that awaits those who commit these sins, and that even when he's talking to them that an entire generation would be responsible for these sins committed. Then Jesus ends, But sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourself, and you prevent others from entering. I want to end this message with how Jesus began this rebuke. He called them foolish, didn't he? He called them foolish. In Psalm 14.1, it says, Only fools say in their hearts there is no God. Read that again. 14.1. Only fools say in their hearts there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. So it is foolish not to believe in God's word. Again, going back to Luke, Jesus' words, he says, But even more blessed are all those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. If we hear the word, we come to faith, we then receive the blessings of grace and mercy and peace, and we'll never have to experience the sorrow that Jesus is speaking of here. Even if we are fools, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we are redeemed. We're redeemed through that faith in Jesus. So I hope God really brought an application for you. But I like how Jesus started, and I, just, I don't want any of us to be fools. And the foolish thing is, is not to believe in Jesus and who he is. Turn from your sins. Turn to faith in Jesus and receive all that Jesus has for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message, Lord, this rebuke that you've given the leaders. And Lord, I just pray that none of us, none of us would experience the sorrow, the woes that are spoken of here, Lord. Because, Lord, we would not be foolish, Lord, but we would place our faith in you and your word and believe upon who you are and what you've done for each one of us. So, Lord, I thank you, Lord, as we hear this rebuke, that we may make mistakes, we may fall, we may stumble, Lord, but through our faith in you, you, we are forgiven. So, Lord, we praise you and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.